Hi everyone, Erin here. So sorry to interrupt today's episode, but I have something amazing to share with you. Do you want to become a mindfulness or well-being strategist? Perhaps so. If you do, I have the exact program for you. In partnership with UPeace, United Nations Institution, we are offering a three-month training to certify people in mindfulness and well-being strategy. This is a three-month virtual program plus one-week in-person retreat in Osada, Costa Rica. This certificate is in partnership with UPeace, a United Nations international school that focuses on social innovation, entrepreneurship, and peace building. The certificate will train participants in meditation, mindfulness, coaching, positive psychology, emotional intelligence, new ways of healing, sales funnels, branding, overall modern day wellness and how you can launch and grow a business. As a graduate, you can take on one-on-one clients as a well-being strategist, offer wellness programming in corporations, schools, and more. Build your own wellness programming and learn how to attract clients and grow your business. Definitely check out The links in the footnotes would love, love, love to have you. Thanks so much for listening and hope to see you soon. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Wise Woman Podcast, featuring leading voices in 2019, supporting women to fully show up, connect to their feminine authenticity and truth. I am your host, Stephanie Adler, founder of Bright Bean Health, supporting women pursuing optimized hormone health and a greater connection to and sense of self. May this be your time to create well-being, balance, and for you to thrive. I am super pumped about today's guest, Dr. Ana Lucia Lopez-Reveretto, a dear friend of mine and a mentor. Dr. Ana Lucia is a culture professional that works with organizations to reimagine and strengthen their culture of belonging. Trained as a critical ethnographer and global development social worker, her background lies in cross-cultural diplomacy and immigrant and refugee advocacy. Born in Lima, Peru, Ana Lucia has called six out of seven continents her home throughout different points of her life. She's an avid backpacker, chocolate eater, and map collector who credits the people she's met across her travels to 118 countries with igniting her passion for culture and public service. Hi, Ana Lucia. I'm so happy that you're joining me here today. Um... I honestly just want to start with 118 countries. That number shocks me, even though I know that you travel all the time. Can you tell me a little bit about your traveling and like with the love of traveling, where it came from? Absolutely. Um, wow. It's It truly is a love. It's my greatest love. And it's not so much the traveling, it's more the people that I meet and the stories that I hear and the connections that I make. And the number, you know, 118 is, it, it changed, it's going to change by the end of, by maybe the time that people hear this podcast, hopefully. Um, and that number really is, signifies to me uh, the reality of a dream. And I just remember, I grew up in the United States as an undocumented American. And for those of those, for those folks who don't know what that means, uh, essentially means that you are not, you don't have legal permission to be residing in the United States of America. I came as a child uh, with my parents and grew up in the United States without knowing anything else other than an American way of being. And at an early age, I, at 13, I was told uh, by my father in preparation for our first, my first Girl Scout trip abroad that I was not able to go abroad because I was not able to leave the country. 
that conversation, of course, for a 13 year old was just so loaded and I had so many questions and I was so confused and what did it mean to be illegal and what did it mean to not be able to leave? And is this why we weren't able to visit my grandma who was sick in Peru? And is this why, you know, all these family members that I had ever heard about were only figures of our imagination because of that inability to leave. And sure enough, that the answer was yes. Those were all the reasons why. And we weren't, it wasn't the fact that we were from, it was, it, yes, part of it was that we were in a working class scenario and there was two parents that were working their butts off to make ends meet for their four kids. But another big reality was that me leaving would result in me not being able to return. So in the years that passed from me finding out that I was undocumented, which was when I was 13, to the time in which I was finally, after waiting every day by the mail, a card that granted me permanent residency, or that granted me the steps towards that. Um, I kept this this book, this book of dreams, and this book of maps, and and what I call my, you know, my hidden atlas of my of what everything that I wanted to discover. And now at 33, 13 years after that, I've been just so blessed to be able to fulfill so many of those dreams that fortunately still make me so happy and continue to evolve and continue to guide so much of my my passion and my work and how I interact on a daily basis with folks around me. Wow. Every time I hear that story, it just touches a different part of my heart. So tell me a little bit about your work um, and how it's related to culture and related to these adventures and trips that you take. Wow. I think, you know, culture is, as a community, as a, as a collective, as an individual, I really believe it's our most precious gift. And it's something that partially defines us, something that we contribute to. Um, we are constantly co-creating, expanding. Culture is all around us. And for myself, as a culture professional that works with nonprofit and for-profit organizations to really evaluate their organizational culture, uh, it was so easy for me to be like, okay, like I work with these organizations, but I also, of course, I want to create my own projects around, around culture. And so I have two main projects that I'm working on right now. And that's Flavors of Coexistence and Jutina. And Flavors of Coexistence is a pop-up dining initiative that uses gastro diplomacy and food storytelling to really dive deep into understanding, further our understanding of historical coexistence of certain groups, to really widen our appreciation of cultures we might not have a lot of knowledge about, and to root us in with regards to human migration and how it is that as humans we've been moving throughout time and as a result contributed to actively growing cuisines and national identities. Uh, and, th and that's flavors of coexistence. And Jutina is a second project that's specific for Jewish Latinos. It's a platform to give them more of an opportunity to one, gather with the intention, with the understanding, that mutual understanding of like, we're here, we share this identity of being Jewish and Latino, and we really want to dive deeper into 
issues and themes and celebrations regarding the Jewish Latino experience. And so both of these projects were born out of, I felt like a need to create these experiences in larger communities, and especially Jutina, which is very much like an answer to the lack of programming that exists for Jewish Latinos in all of the Jewish organizing world. And we oftentimes, we've, I've, I've I think it's wonderful that we've had so many opportunities for Jews of color to convene in various situations, but oftentimes Latinos are not are are, are left out of that experience, and the Latino experience is so vast that I really felt it was important for us to have our own platform to be able to create and dive deeper into this element of our identity. Um, and I've been so fortunate to for the last three years having worked with an organization called One Table that really supports also the furthering of, further discovering of one's identity through food and through the ritual of Shabbat, which is our oldest wellness practice and is a ritual that really brings people out, that really can bring people of so many different backgrounds together for an opportunity to engage in dialogue, culture, and laughter. Yes, so much yes to all of that. I've had the privilege of attending these flavors of coexistence dinners. And my background is actually in conflict resolution. That's what my undergraduate degree was in. And I remember the first time I heard you describe describe gastro diplomacy. And it just hit me in all the right places as someone who's a natural chef and believes that we overnourishing food can create connections that go really deep and can heal wounds. Um, I was just so inspired by these programs and then also combining them with this beautiful wellness practice of Shabbat, which I use in my day to my week to week uh, to help me ground and center. And the fusion of all of it was so, so magical. So thanks for providing that. And where do you do these dinners generally? Like where yes. can people find them? Oh my goodness. Well, we've got, uh, I've got a website for Flavors of Coexistence. That's flavorsofcoexistence.com uh, and as well as Jutina. But Flavors of Coexistence is definitely the, it's, since it's, it's a pop-up dining initiative that brings people of different backgrounds together, we're constantly having programs, mostly at, at this moment in time in the Bay Area uh, and the Pacific Northwest. We've had some on the East Coast, hopefully continue to do more, obviously based on interest and resources. The need, desire, and connection that results of it, the need for it and the desire are there, and the connection that results from these programs is so important to our community as a whole. And you know, you mentioned, uh, you brought up gastro diplomacy, and gastro diplomacy, when I was in college, was something that I randomly set into a class because I was, I also studied conflict resolution and I don't even know what it was that, that lured me in there, but it completely changed my life because I really do see food as a heart opener. Mm -hmm. And it's something that really brings us down to our more most human, the, the, the most human thing that we can do. And that's one feed ourselves, but also feed others. And, and as a result of that nourishment that exists, there is real nourishment that exists in the heart from remembering, you know, like we replicate. And if I'm replicating something, what is my memory associated with that? Is it something that my mother taught me that I, as a result, I'm sharing with you. And now I'm sharing something she taught me. Like there's something really beautiful and something really peaceful 
about that. And I absolutely believe, especially in a, in a time and place when anti-Semitism and xenophobia, Islamophobia are an, at an all-time high, experiences that bring people together at a place so nourishing and so safe, like a, like a dinner table, is so important and oftentimes just almost overlooked. So I feel so lucky to have been able to work with people like yourself and other incredible chefs that really also see the power that food can have in, in, for, in really advancing peace and proving that coexistence starts, you know, one, one meal at a time. Yes. I mean, something I see so much in my nutrition practice is how much of our identity we connect to with food. And sometimes that carries a lot of weight. And actually, before we hopped on officially recording, Ana Lucia and I were talking about just like this concept of holding different identities and what does that feel like. And I think that these dinners provide the opportunity, since we do oftentimes connect food with identity so much to have a really safe space to talk about that um, and engage in conversation that, like you said, feels safe and allows you to be vulnerable and say like, yeah, I am Jewish, but I also am a person of color. And like, what does that mean? Well, maybe someone at the at the table who hasn't been able to have that conversation yet can still engage in um in a safe way, because it's like you said, it's a dinner table, which is really important. Um, tell me a little bit more about you, Tina, and just about your experience holding some of these different identities. Absolutely. So as I was mentioning earlier, Jutina was born out of a just very evident need that there was a space lacking for Jewish Latinos to one congregate and do so with that understanding that we're we've got this already in common. So let's go to the next step. You know, let's let's really dive into other aspects of identity, such as what does it mean to be a maybe your first language is Spanish or maybe it's not, and how does language play a role in like your identity with either with either being Latino or being uh, um, American or being Jewish or being anything that could essentially not be understood in another context, in another space for other Jews of color. And also like with that full understanding that being a Jewish Latino is so complex as it is. And when I was just mentioning that one of the reasons why Jutina was born was out of a, a really of an awareness that when we congregate Jews of color in a large space, it's wonderful and appreciated. Um, but it's also very isolating to feel like there's not room for me and my community to really have more of an opportunity to advance conversation and dive deeper into uh, themes of identity. And at the same time, the Jewish Latino identity is also so vast. You know, I, I connect with a lot of Jewish Latinos who were born either in Latin America or were born in the States um, because I was born in Latin America and I grew up in the States. But my experience was very different. Like I grew up as an undocumented American and that's very oftentimes not something that's ever discussed in the Jewish context. And so, and, and we exist. There are Latinos who are Jewish, who are undocumented, living in the United States. And how do we even make room and create empathy around that 
experience if we don't just say we're going to create a space that's specifically for this and and for that. And so it's been really wonderful in this platform to meet other folks. And I've had so many people reach out and say, my goodness, I ran across your page. I love this program that's happening. Like I would love to join or I would love to learn more. How can I bring it here? Or can I participate? Um, I'm undocumented and I have this and, and me being able to say, oh my goodness, like, yes. And let's think about other ways in which where we can be reaching other people who are part of our community that might be feeling isolated as a result of maybe these wide umbrella terms that oftentimes make us feel even more unseen. And so that's a, a general, uh, a, a general idea of what it is that we're doing. And I, a couple earlier in the year, I brought on a really good friend who is also someone who identifies as a Jutina on board to really think through some of the Jewish education elements um, that we might continue to add to this experience because what we really want is make sure that we're doing all, all we're, that we're offering all equal parts of this experience, like that identity experience, that Jewish identity experience, and again, that like Latino identity. So really looking at all of those three aspects and making room for more things to naturally come about. Oh, so much. Yes. It's so needed. I meet people all the time who just don't even know that Jews of color exist. Um, especially like you said, that there may be undocumented Jewish Americans living amongst us and we're just not aware. And so I think the awareness and the advocacy is so important. And you're also doing these programs in a corporate setting around culture inclusivity. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. So um, a couple years ago, I was asked to uh, support someone who was thinking about developing a, a specifically kind of like regutting. That was the term that was that was shared with me. <laughs> um, an organization's culture, and they tapped. They they kind of just brought me in and said, "Hey, Anna Lucia, I know that you are, you're a social worker and that you um, are." You, know, you, you teach, you're in graduate school, and I'm very curious about, for you as an educator in social work, especially who has a, an emphasis on culture and ethics and social justice, how you might think, what you might want to contribute to this experience if, if you're interested. And I was fascinated. I was like, absolutely. And that kind of completely changed my world with regards to my own ability to take my life and my work and my background as a social worker and move into a more corporate space. And over the last couple of years, I've been consulting for nonprofit organizations, for-profit organizations that are really wanting to invest in not only evaluating the organizational culture, but are wanting to really make strides in and revamping and reimagining what it is to talk about belonging and inclusivity and diversity in a workspace. And so it's been, I, I have to say, it's been one of the most satisfying, not quite, not, I don't want to say necessarily transitions, but satisfying, you know, kind of mending of worlds to be able to take my expertise in one world and be able to move it into a place that really needs so much humanizing, which is this very like fast paced corporate, a lot of corporate spaces that are constantly on the go, go, go. And as a result of their high performance, oftentimes are missing uh, the opportunity to develop or skip through that opportunity to develop their own 
culture of belonging and inclusivity. So what advice would you have for someone who might be listening to this podcast and maybe they're the head of an organization or maybe they just work for an organization and are in the corporate space and they want to create a bigger sense of belonging, a greater sense of belonging and more inclusivity in their workspace, other than bringing in someone like you, what are some little steps they can start doing to create this environment? Certainly. So I really do think that if people want to, if organizations want to put an emphasis on culture, then they need to invest in that experience. And it needs to really be something that we're talking about the top is saying, they're recognizing even before someone else who is maybe a more junior level associate or employee comes forward and asks for these things. Like this is when senior management needs to say, okay, it's time for an evaluation. We've been going at it for so long, for so on and so on, or we've expanded so quickly. Um, we're, we're going to expand so quickly. We really need to think strategically about how we're going to do this. And it can, maybe Maybe it's the HR team. Maybe they've got the skills to be able to do that on their own. Maybe it really is bringing in expertise and from the outside who is able to do so, provide an analysis in an unbiased manner or to be able to bring in a lot more um, questions and, and ideas that might invoke, that, that might really provoke a lot of thinking that the organization's already not doing. So I would really say that it really starts in just that initial recognition of, okay, we need to take we need to get ahead of this before we fall behind. And we need to get ahead of this before people that are essentially making our organization run, which are a lot of like the junior folks that are at our organizations and are doing a lot of that, let's say button pushing for lack of a better word, that we keep that happiness as a priority for us. Like their happiness and their ability to be seen and feel as if they belong, those things are going to ensure that we are able to continue to be successful in what it is that we're doing or expand in the way that we're wanting to expand. So again, it's really taking that initiative to say, do I wait or do I think ahead and really do so in a way that is thinking about holistic happiness and a holistic belonging so that we can get ahead of something that might in the end save us from losing really talented people or expanding too quickly and as a result, creating an organizational flush. Um, and then as a result, not everyone, people being seriously unhappy. And that's something that, that does happen often. Yeah. And I think it's really important to note that, you know, I think people see this in some of the cultures of the tech companies, especially in the Bay Area, and they think that it can only happen for these larger companies. Uh, where we know that this is definitely possible in organizations of all sizes. So I think that like one, to not be discouraged if you're working in an environment that doesn't feel super culturally inclusive, to know that there can be some steps to change. And it sounds like maybe starting by talking to HR is a good place to start. And hopefully from there, people can start to create real change. So as someone who I've always admired for being able to take on so much and show up in such a beautifully authentic and full way, I'm curious, and as someone who really values ritual, as we've talked about earlier, I'd love to hear a little bit about what are some of your day-to-day -day rituals that help you 
show up the way you do. And also if you have any rituals that are maybe unique to certain holidays or practices that we can all learn from. Absolutely. I think that ritual for me as well allows me to keep sane and to stay calm and to really nourish my inside and my heart really the way I want to be nourished in order for me to do the work that I'm doing. So the repetition of ritual is something that I value, whether it's on a daily basis or on a weekly basis, and whether it's something I do on my own or whether it's something I do in community. So just to quickly answer, what are some things for me, the ritual of sleep and the ritual of staying hydrated, drinking water, and and really nourishing my body in a way that feels good are all things that I value as being critical and central to how I'm, I'm able to survive, right, on a daily basis. Another thing that I also do is I always, I try to keep my phone farther away so that when I wake up and I'm still emerging from that sleep, that I'm able to not have this incessant need to start the day without really awakening. You know, like, am I, am I there? Am I fully awake to be able to act and to be able to do all the things that all of a sudden I'm prompting myself to do? Probably not. So giving myself that time is so valuable as well as setting it aside and, and knowing that it's there, but not necessarily needing to be around it at all points in time. So I always spend a couple hours a day away from my phone so that, you know, it's there. If, if an emergency happens, I'm able to connect. But at the same time, I'm also able to live my life the way I grew up living my life. And that wasn't with a phone next to me 24-7. Another, you know, the weekly ritual of Shabbat is something that is without a doubt the ritual that has probably changed my life more than any other. Because as I mentioned earlier, as our oldest wellness ritual, it's really one that we from, you know, humankind has been producing from the beginning. And we've been working and going at it. And it just roots me to the idea that this incessant need to do is not just about me. It's, it's a human thing. And we need to rest. And being able to bring others into that space and cultivate that culture of rest is so important. So that keeps me absolutely in tune and that, that physical process of setting the table and setting all the things that I need up for Shabbat really give me the opportunity to physically prepare so that I can then mentally surrender to these like 25 hours of rest. I love that. I think I'm going to adopt the keeping the phone further away from the bed while I sleep because currently when I wake up in the morning, I lay down, I put my, or I'm already laying down, but I put my feet together and my legs apart to kind of open up my hips. And I say things I'm grateful for that are as simple as waking up this morning and that my heart is beating. And it's just really this moment of instead of these things that we automatically take for granted, just like waking up, I try and ground into them. But sometimes I'll find that immediately after I'm done with that practice, I just reach my phone and I'm already checking emails or whatever. So I love that idea of just creating more physical space and allowing the bed to be more sacred. Uh, I have a question for you about Shabbat. Like, 
Can you describe for me and for folks who maybe don't know what exactly is Shabbat? And if you wanted to start celebrating it or to learn a little bit more, where would you go? Oh my gosh, yes. Oh, what a great question. So the ritual of Shabbat, and, and just to place like it in time, Shabbat or the Sabbath starts what we know as Friday night, right? So we're looking at the calendar uh, when it comes to Friday at sundown, that's when Shabbat starts. And it's 25 hours of rest. And when I say rest, I mean really the, the notion of detaching oneself from the activity or the mindset of producing, of doing things that are essentially work, okay? And so we start Friday at sundown, it ends Saturday at sundown, and generally in the Jewish, in the Jewish community, in the Jewish faith, um, and also in just Jewish life in a, in a secular mindset, Shabbat is an opportunity to connect with family, with friends, to, to really see what's, be able to touch base with everything that's around you that's important to you, and to let go of a lot of stressors that are essentially holding us down throughout the week. And it's celebrated through a myriad of ways. But for me, the way in which I connect to it before anything else is Shabbat dinner, which takes place on Friday night. And if anyone is interested in partaking in a Shabbat experience, especially, I, I invite them to partake in that Friday night experience. And I invite them to do so by visiting One Table, which is another incredible organization that I've been working with that, as I mentioned earlier, allows young adults the opportunity to find Shabbat dinners that are happening in their neighborhoods, their respective neighborhoods, and either join a dinner, or if they don't see a dinner, to post a dinner and host it, you know, on their own. So I would definitely recommend doing that. I couldn't agree more. I host a one table Shabbat dinner at least once a month. And I love opening it up for new people to come. I'm hosting one this Friday, actually. And so far, there's eight people who I've never met that hopefully will become new friends that are going to be coming to our barbecue. It's like a Shabbat barbecue bonfire thing. And it's been a really beautiful way to meet new friends. And I just want to reiterate, you don't need to have any experience with Shabbat to be Jewish, to even really have experience with Judaism at all. Um, it's a really inclusive and wonderful space. And I always love having a really mixed group at my Shabbat and one table is really supportive of that. So thanks, Ana Lucia. Oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, no, I love hearing such, that. Yeah, you've created such a, an incredible community around this wellness practice. I have to say I've helped create because it's the hosts that do it all. It's the hosts that are the ones that are on a weekly basis putting themselves out there and saying, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to challenge myself and I'm going to post and I'm going to host this dinner. And maybe it won't be exactly like I imagined it would be, but I'm doing it. And that's part of leadership. It's just doing that. And it's such a great way to make friends in a new city and one tables in so many cities now. I have a really beautiful story that I always like to share with people so that they open up their homes where I had been waiting to get news on something for like ever months. And 
my partner was out of town and so did happen to be a lot of my friends. And I kind of forgot that it was Friday night and I don't love to not have plans for Shabbat, but I'd been so preoccupied with, was I going to get into this program? And I got the news that I wasn't getting into the program, that I was rejected at like two o'clock on a Friday. And then all of a sudden it hit me that I was also going to be alone for Shabbat. And I was so upset. And so I went on the platform for one table and I actually ended up a lovely woman named Sarah was like, absolutely, you should come to my house. And I ended up meeting one of my best friends there. Um, And it's just like this story that goes to show what happens when you open your door to people you don't know. And they're just friends waiting to be made around breaking bread together. Yay. (laughs) Yes. That's amazing. That's amazing. (laughs) 